everybody, and welcome to the Cane and Rinse podcast, volume 9, issue 414. And today we're going to talk about the video game Axiom Verge. And joining me, Leon Cox, in issue 414 are James Carter. Hi. Joshua Garrity. Hello there. And Mickey O'Croda. Which one of these fighters will prove the old axiom today? <laughs> well... Uh, it did cross my mind that that was one of the few other instances of the word axiom cropping up in video games. Mm. But uh, rather than bring a vocal interpretation of one of the frightening, terrifying, uh, scratchy sound samples from Axiom Verge, Mm. you've brought a sound sample from Street Fighter 4. Yeah, we can't be too predictable, can we? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. This is a spoiler warning for the plot of Axiom Verge. We'll get into that. But what is Axiom Verge? I'll start. I think it is a 2D side-on platform arcade adventure with an expansive map full of hidden power-ups and areas gated off until the player has found certain gear or abilities. If only there was a portmanteau single word (laughs) that we could use to encapsulate all of that. I just want to say there is no Vania in this game. I was going to say that. See, this is one of the things that actually was crossing my mind. So Mm -hmm. if... It's really more Metroid than Vania oh, yeah. because the thing that the Vania brought in the sense of Symphony of the Night was leveling up. And uh, so it wasn't just about what gear you had and uh, what items you'd collected. It was about you could simply go and grind and, and make yourself stronger. in and of itself, yeah. Yeah, you can't do that in this. So it's, so it's more Metroid than Vania. I agree with Mikhail. Interestingly, if you uh, go back, there's a there's a documentary which I don't have an official one, which was is part of the uh, you can buy it on Steam. It's part of the collector's edition or whatever of the game. But I did listen to a, a half an hour or so audio interview with Tom Hat, which was recorded near the time of the game's release, and it is interesting. And I think this this is echoed in some of the interviews he did as well. He set out not to make a Metroid clone. Mm. He was very much influenced by, he mentions, uh, vintage coin-ops such as Rygar and Bionic Commando, and also the more recent, but still quite a while ago now, Bionic Commando Rearmed, Blaster Master, Contra, R-Type, Kyaris, yeah. Metroid <laughs> yeah. is, is, is in there. But actually, there's a, there are a lot of different influences detectable in this game. Yeah. I think what, what he... I listened to the same interview, and he pointed mm. out that at one point, because uh, he started to work on this idea of transforming the environment, and because he wanted to make that idea uh, readable, he wanted to start using these very beaconed off uh, tile sets, right? Like, or these tiles, mm. uh, and that started to give the game way of a, a way more of a metroid uh look yeah. and this is what's yeah this is what what sort of guided his vision from there on out is mm. it fair to say that some of the things that this game gets from a bunch of those games i haven't played i'll be honest but like bionic commando okay so you've got the grapple and the swing but that's also in some metroid games so mm, yeah. yeah i mean you could say that they they're not not cherry picking from different places so much as they all kind of bleed into one another mechanically well, yeah. to certain extents anyway Yes, I often think about this because I think it's... I don't know how academic historians do this in, ter- in yeah. terms of non, non-video non games, but there is always that... You can always go back one step farther, can't Ooh, you? Yeah. You can always trace back ultimately ending up at amoebas crawling out of the sea. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, and similarly, you can trace every video game back to Tennis for Two and Pong and things like that. So there, there has to be a point where you sort of take stock and say, okay, these are just part of the, the common uh, yeah. semantics lexicon of video yeah, games. Sure. Yeah. 
But certainly, I would say that Samus's grapple was influenced because. So, M- Mikhail, you've played Metroid One. Yeah. Does she have a grapple in no, that? No, no, that's only in Super Metroid. That was that game was released. Metroid One came out before Bionic Commando, yeah. which was so 1986 to 1987. Yeah. And then in 1994, Super Metroid. Not sure about Metroid Two. Samus Returns? I don't think there was a grapple uh, no. in there. And uh, so, stop me when I get too to, uh, detailed, but uh, mm-hmm. the grapple in Axiom Verge functions very much like the one in Bionic Commando in that you can yeah. latch it on everywhere and it sort of swings yes. you across and you, you let go and you sort of, you know, you yeah. carry that momentum forward. Whereas yeah. uh, in Super Metroid, the grapple beam uh, yeah works with uh, specific latch on points, whereas yes. in yeah, this yeah. one you can use it free and willy-nilly. Which actually makes it more like the whip in Super Castlevania 4. Uh, the whip <laughs> the, in the, Super the, Castlevania 4 also has only latch points. Uh, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, exactly. Super, right. me- okay. Super Metroid. Good. Yeah. good, good. We're talking about the same yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll, get, we'll talk more about all the mechanics and stuff later on. Yeah, but a sure. uh, ba- bit more background for now. Thomas Happ Games is a developer, and it really is pretty much a one-person joint. Uh, he was joined by producer Dan Edelman, formerly of Nintendo, for the business side of things, and he also was supported by his wife Esther with some of the marketing and related uh, sort of facets. He is, by his by his own admission, somebody who's obviously ridiculously a multi-talented, a polymath, can do graphics, music, and gameplay, but uh, is no use at all when it comes to business which is fair enough really because no one should be brilliant at everything it's not right it was uh, an independent project uh, the thomas haps background was actually with uh, ea he worked on uh, the pga tour series tiger woods games as, as uh, along with other things he worked with petroglyph games worked on titles such as end of nations and nfl street as well uh, he also worked on a GBA project named Orn, which was a Metroid fan game. That one I'm not familiar with. Would have been interesting to... Uh, I don't, don't know whether it was completed, but um, I assume it was, the way this is uh, talking about it. But Axiom Verge, so we're talking about it five years after its release. It's actually 10 years since it started in development, March 2010, as a side project. An alpha build was submitted to the 2012 Dream Build Play Challenge. The game was originally expected to be released on PC and Xbox 360 in 2013. It was ultimately delayed. There is a trailer still out there for the 2013 release of the XBLA version. So, yeah, that didn't happen. On the subject of this one-man joint, Forumite Pecan Pie says, The fact that Thomas Happ designed the whole game and also wrote all those banging tracks is mind-boggling. It's so interesting to see a complete artistic vision in a medium that is usually a composite of multiple people's ideas and talents. Gingertastic01 chimes in with how did one person manage to make this game? Thomas Happ deserves a lot of credit in being able to make a game that is as impressive as this. The design, the soundtrack and graphics are all executed to a high standard and I was consistently dumbfounded that this was the work of a single person. As a result, I feel like the game has a very focused and cohesive vision of what it wants to achieve. So after... All those years of work, five years, the game was finally released on PlayStation 4 initially in North America, March the 31st, 2015, just over five years ago. And then very sadly, I have to report, I noticed when completing the game yesterday and watching the credits roll, I noticed a dedication. Uh, The game was devoted to Max Hap. Uh, So 
Max could have been a male or a female. And the fact that Tom Hap included the surname made me wonder if it was. Uh, is it, so it says, I think my, I think he says my best friend or something like that. So I was thinking could be a brother, could be a yeah. sister, could be father. So I Googled it and, uh, and I came up with the, on the Axiom Verge wiki, a post from, uh, April 11th, 2015, with uh, an extensive uh, dedication, really, to this poor dog, Max, who had been with Tom throughout development, a lovely black, uh, mainly lab, I think, and had actually beaten what they believed was going to be terminal cancer, only eventually to succumb to seemingly separate and unrelated illness and so this actually happened max actually passed away in the weeks after the release of the initial release of axiom verge so tom was in in some ways it was dream come true stuff because the game had done really well critically done you know got off to a flyer commercially but then at the same time he was mourning the loss of his best buddy his pal his 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 dog companion and of course he's saying in this piece you know i would trade all this in a heartbeat to have my dog back and it's really that that made me choke up when i read that yeah it's really tough but um you know obviously we're five years on now and uh everyone's lost pets and it is heartbreaking you know you never forget them but you do move on eventually it doesn't sting quite so bad so i hope tom is able to fondly remember max and maybe he's even got new companions i don't know but um i did say to i did say to james last night on our slack saying how can we be mean about this game now it's dedicated (laughs) to the poor guy's dead dog (laughs) so yeah uh r.i.p max we dedicate this podcast to you as well yeah despite tom's Sadness, grief, heartbreak. Uh, the game obviously continued to get worked on and be become released. I assume that dedication was actually added in one of the updates because uh, Max was still with us when the game was first sent out to, to for download services. The PAL version, PAL EU territories, arrived in April 20, 2015. Then the PC version and Mac arrived in another couple of weeks later. Uh, May uh, by the way, I suspect this this is a game where the any version differences are completely indetectable and irrelevant. I would imagine you would have to have a ridiculously keen eye to have any kind of sense of which version if you saw them all running side by side. Uh, I don't think anyone's even done a comparison because it would be a a bit of a fool's errand. In October 2015, Thomas Happ teamed up with IndieBox, a monthly subscription box service, to create a custom-designed physical release of Axiom Verge. The limited, individually numbered collector's edition included a flash drive with a DRM-free copy of the game, official soundtrack, instruction manual, Steam key as well, and several custom-made collectible items. High demand for the physical version caused the IndieBox website to crash. That's according to Wikipedia. It then took the best part of a year for the Vita version to arrive. And this was crossed by. So they decided from the off that they were going to make this available to people who'd already bought it on PS4, whether in America or Europe. Uh, it would automatically be free to download for your Vita, which is quite cool. I'm not sure if they ever did implement cross-save in the end. It was talked about on that interview I mentioned, but I didn't get as far as finding out if cross-save was, was actually included in the Vita version. And the Wii U. This is an interesting one. So it came out September 2016. I remember this. Back in, it was originally revealed in March 2015. It was revealed that a Wii U version had been initially considered, but was not possible at the time due to technical issues, particularly with the game's engine. Monogame lacking native support for Nintendo's platform. However, Nintendo were interested in having Axiom Verge come to the Wii U. 
So in March 2016, it was confirmed the game would arrive on the platform. Tom Hap originally intended to include an unlockable Samus Aran costume in the Wii version, in the Wii U version, but Nintendo did not approve. <laughs> <laughs> At one point, a 3DS version of Axiom Verge was also considered. Didn't happen, no. Then in 20, September 2016, an Xbox One version arrived. Then another year later, the Switch version arrived because, of course, it did. October 2017. And there's a, a multiverse, a multiverse edition physical, which is uh, all, all the rage these days. In February 2017, uh, Spanish game distributor Badland Games announced they were collaborating with Tom Hap to publish Axiom Verge as a retail title. In addition to a standard retail release only for the PlayStation 4, a special limited Axiom Verge Multiverse Edition will be available for the PS4, Vita and Wii U during quarter two 2017 in NA and Europe. The Multiverse Edition will include uh, the physical copy, the booklet, the developer commentary as well, which uh, which is a, always a rare treat, some art, double-sided poster, a making-of documentary on Blu-ray. That's the one I mentioned earlier. You can also get it on Steam. And yeah, it was November 2017 in America, January in 2018 in the EU. And yes, there was a physical edition of the Wii U version distributed by Limited Run Games in March 2019. There was a dispute between the developer and distributor and the publisher regarding an amount of money owing around a quarter of a million dollars. Uh, this was reported by Kotaku and 15th. March 2019 but I understand that uh, it was as far as these things go it was relatively amicable hope it's all been sorted out since then reviews wise the game did consistently in this ballpark across the board 84 uh, different slightly different scores for different versions but the average is around 84% which is what the PC uh, sorry the PS4 version has on its scores user wise uh, very positive according to Steam Reviewers, both, both recently and all time. On Nintendo Life, we've got uh, about an eight from punters across the Wii U and Switch versions. Axiom Verge was nominated for Best Independent Game at the Game Awards in 2015. Steam sales, we don't know, but somewhere around 100,000 to 200,000. And I believe, Josh, you're in publishing. That makes it a success. Yes, it does indeed. Even even if that's only the only copies that they sold. But of course, I imagine across all the versions and probably Steam as well now and those physical versions, we're going to be looking. Th there's no figure out there, but I mean, I'm going to assume it's probably broken si seven figures at least. But who knows? Anyway, our histories with the game. Josh, I think, was this your nomination for the year? For it the it was. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, so... Uh I I had only played this when the and completed it when the Switch version came out. So I, I was relatively speaking late to the party um on this one. I had played the um the PC version previous to this, um, but I just got to a certain point where I got completely lost as people are want to do with this game. That'll happen. Uh, I think it just took having it on a portable device and being able to play it on a train and just sit with a problem for a while rather than being distracted by other games that I could be playing at home um, that got me through it. So I've done a half playthrough on PC uh, and a full playthrough on the Switch. That's interesting because I suspect that actually that half playthrough on the PC will reflect a number of our listeners <laughs> who didn't go back to it and, and try it again. It'll be interesting to see if our words 
for the rest of this podcast persuade anyone to return to it. Mikhail, I believe you also had a bit of a slow start with this one. Definitely. Uh, I actually never really meant to buy this game because, yes, a part of me always kind of find it, finds it irksome when a modern game uh, wears its influences so much on its sleeves that it looks like a fan game pretty much you know if mm -hmm. i was there's a part of me that always thinks like if you have that amount of talent to make make a game like that why not do something completely new why not create a new universe and why not create your own iconography that uh you know that will live on in the hearts and minds of people rather than to really recall something that i'm personally very fond of the uh, the old metroid games that that strongly yeah you were talking about uh the game coming to wii u as well I remember uh, this uh, event where Reggie Fizeme, then of Nintendo of America, remarked that the game looked <laughs> remarkably, uh, you know, a, a lot like Metroid. And then people mm. telling him, yeah, but that's because you guys don't make him, uh, make those games anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. that, and that's all well and good. And I get that sentiment um, and I get that sort of, uh, you know, you want that sort of conti continuity. But I always felt like, yeah, it just looks too much like a fan game project of mine. In the meantime... Mm friend of mine, uh, Johannes, who was uh, once on this podcast as well, on the Street Fighter 4 show, uh, he was uh, raving about this game. He's an incredible uh, fan of Metroid. And I just had some spare credit on PSN and I literally had nothing else to spend it on. And I still was kind, still kind of curious about this game. So I decided to uh, yeah, spend my remaining credit on it, uh, quickly fired it up, then uh, only returned to it this year when we uh, were going to do it for the podcast. James, you're a sort of late sub for this one. It was going to be Carl, but he's actually been unwell with uh, the thing that uh, is going around, shall we say. James, you were, I can't remember even if on our big spreadsheet of games, were you even down as a possibility for this one originally? Uh, I can't remember. You may have even <laughs> been a red for this saying like, oh, I'm not going to. But then as it turned out, you decided you were going to play along with the show anyway. And you kind of ended up sort of burning through it pretty quick. Uh, yeah, so I hadn't heard of this game until the beginning of the week. No, I'm, I'm kidding, obviously. Um, <laughs> uh, this was a game that I had heard of, obviously, around the time it came out. It just popped up in the sort of uh, places that I listen to and get information about games. Um, and I checked, I picked up a copy on Steam in January 2016, so in the kind of seven to eight month window after its release on Steam. And I imagine that was probably in a winter sale on Steam, if I'm honest. It may well have been even the first time the game was dis discounted on Steam. And I didn't then get around to, play, to trying it until June that year, so uh, sort of five, six months later. I want to say I got up to meeting... El Senova, or however we're going to pronounce that character's name. We, we've all got our own we take We have on indeed, it, yeah. Expect the pronunciation to drift as we get through the podcast, folks. <laughs> I, I want to say I got up to there, but I also seem to remember playing about an hour of the game, and I don't think that's an hour into the game. I think that's earlier than that. So I got to that point and kind of put it down, always intending to go back to it, and just didn't until I've been having a bit of a Switch renaissance recently going back to uh, Planescape Torment. I played in Switch, obviously that issue, I covered why that was. Um, and I happened to be in a local purveyor of video games and spot a copy of Axiom Verge, a physical copy on Switch, and thought, yeah, yeah you know what, I'll pick that up and give it another uh, blast. Actually paid more for it physically on Switch than I had for the Steam version <laughs> years ago. Uh, so I picked that up in February and kind of thought, you know what, this is on the list for this year. Enough people that I really... Um, 
appreciate the opinions of our fans of uh, this game. So I will play along with the show and uh, said as much, I think, to you Sunday, possibly uh, at the very sort of end of last week, beginning of this week. And within about two hours, it turned out Carl was saying, look, uh, he wasn't sure he'd be well enough. Obviously, well wishes to Carl, who hopefully by the time this podcast is heard by him, will will be He's picking up. Yeah, yes, will so be he should better. be very much in recovery. Yeah. So yeah, I, I started it on Tuesday. We are now on Saturday and I um, played through it and actually ended up finishing before yourself and Mikhail, I think. I, you I did, kind of yeah. yeah. Very definitely caned this game. Didn't quite rinse it. Yeah. I went in, back in no. for a couple of hours and got myself up to 99% map, 97% items, I think, is the right way around. Pretty much there, that, that, yeah. That almost counts as uh, rinsing, almost. Yeah, yeah. 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 Might, might as well be, might as well be. <laughs> Um, so yeah, a bit of a uh, a bit of a furious uh, Fast and Furious playthrough, but uh, but yeah, that's where I'm at with the game. All on Switch, I should say. I should have actually looked up when I bought this. I know I bought it for PS4, but it may have been when the Vita version released. I'm not entirely certain. I have a feeling Josh was involved in my decision somehow, but I don't really remember how. All you need to know is I quite like the look of it. Uh, this was five years ago or maybe four years ago before I would say I almost I have mixed feelings about saying this, but I genuinely feel like there are too many games in this genre being made at the moment for their own good as much as anything, as well as for the player's good. I have got so many of these games in my backlog. It is ridiculous. I want to play them all. I want them all to be brilliant. And I'm sure many of them are. But the fact that it's taken me five years to getting around to this one, which came out when there weren't quite so many Metroidvania or related titles, um, says that I, I maybe won't get around to all of them. But anyway, the the basic outline, the concept, the look of it made me think that there was probably something here for me, but I would probably end up playing it when we covered it on the podcast. And so it came to pass. I finished it yesterday, having played about 15 hours, completed uh, about mid 80s actually probably because i went back in last night probably about 90 percent of the map and about 60 percent items something like that so i missed a lot of capsules which is kind of par for the course with me and metroid style games so i've already issued the spoiler warning we are going to try to talk about the story (laughs) Uh, (laughs) according to moby games here's a brief outline Axiom Verge is a 2D Metroidvania platformer shooter centred around the protagonist Trace, a scientist who, after an experiment gone wrong, finds himself in the world of Sudra or Sudra. By the time Trace arrives on Sudra, he finds this world and his civilization collapsed due to the release of the pathogen. There's always a pathogen. With the help of the Rosalki giant war machines that guard Sudra, Trace has to fight back the invading forces and return back across the breach to Earth. <laughs> my, my my initial take with the story was, okay, we've got a lab coat. We've got a guy with cool sideburns and a lab coat, and something's gone wrong. And I'm thinking, okay, we, we're in a we're in another world yeah. territory. We're in we're in maybe Half Life type territory, and there are certainly elements of that. But I kind of went in and out with the story. Like, there's some really interesting visual stuff, and it's obviously got. I think Thomas. Ha- had something he wanted to say but my overriding feeling was i came away slightly unclear on both the text and the subtext yeah i i feel like this is a game that would have benefited from much less dialogue 
than there is because I think there's some stuff in there that's kind of evocative, like the the kind of desolation of the pathogen. That there's that room that you go into where there's an ever increasing size of the pile of corpses that you're walking yeah. past. And that's that's really effective piece of like, you know, horror light in this in this action adventure game. Um but then Trace will launch into these like you know, banter back and forth with the bosses. And it's just kind of, what tone are you going for here? Like, mm. you've had all this, like, dark, scary stuff, and now Trace is being sarky with this nightmare, like, Lovecraft monster thing. Um, and, and some of that tone kind of, uh, that weird tonal shifts kind of affects my ability to take the plot seriously. Yeah, there's a lot of h- hard to remember proper nouns coming. It's one yeah. of those yeah. kind of sci-fi stories where everything's got. It, I, sometimes you just wish it would speak plain English rather than try yeah. to obfuscate its message with proper nouns. I think uh, I, I slightly disagree with Josh about the tonal shift. I don't think it's that bad. It's not like of all fourth wall breaking, wink, wink, nudge, nudge uh, stuff those dialogues are. He's kind of trying to uh, talk his way out of this situation more more than anything. You know, it's uh, the most of the time he doesn't want to fight these things. Uh, but I think it's an interesting point of where there's both too much and too little of a story going on. The dialogue is too much, but then there. It's very little to get a, uh, to hold on to, to get a grasp on. And I think a lot of the lore, which, uh, you know, the, the notes that you find could be, could be a great help in sort of piece, uh, letting you piece things together. But a lot of that stuff is pretty well hidden. And a lot of the notes are always ag- uh, also, again, contain just a little bit too much and too little again, where you feel like they're, they're too cryptic and they drop too many they, they drop too many elements that you don't really you know it's it's so easy to just to lose the plot or ju- lose the general idea of what of the story that the game wants to tell you yeah no i i definitely agree i found and i think maybe this speaks to what josh was saying about the tone that it was quite strange to have trace who at times was was pushing back against what he was being asked to do quite heavily in a way that i respected i didn't necessarily think trace was a terribly likable character through most of it because there wasn't much there. He was just a man in a situation. When he was pushing back against what the Rusalki were asking him to do and actually inquiring about their motives and what they wanted of him and why he should, that was good, but it didn't stop him from then just going on and doing it anyway. And the same thing kind of goes with the the notion of, like, this game sets up that Elsenova, Elsenova, however I'm pronouncing it, there's a big question mark for me over most of this game as to whether it's right to help i'm going to say her uh, that's just how i saw that character i'm not uh, yeah, yeah, I yeah. Think so. whether it's right to help elseneva or not she's presented as a sympathetic character because when you're introduced to her she is clearly in pain struggling going to die and you need to help her survive um so yeah. there's a, a notion of being a um uh, of being a savior figure to her and you're told that athetos is bad and i was waiting for the other shoe to drop and I was waiting, and I was waiting, and it didn't, and then it yeah. didn't at the end either. And that was a really weird situation to be in, where if that was going to be the point of this, like in contrast to the likes of System Shock or Bioshock or Portal, where your the voice in your ear turns. Uh, I hope that's vague enough. To, to, no, it's not vague, but hopefully it's not yeah. spoiler for anyone. But 
I was waiting for that to happen here. And if it hadn't, and that was the point, okay. But I didn't feel like that was the point. It felt like that was a thread that I was expected to pull on, but I just came away with a loose thread and it didn't go anywhere. I think we're all in agreement, including our correspondents, that Thomas Happ is obviously a you know a brilliant individual in many ways a creative individual but maybe one of the areas where perhaps he could have got somebody in as well as him i mean he wanted to make this whole thing himself and i completely admire that and respect it and i'm green with envy but maybe a more experienced story writer could yeah. have yeah. just in terms of the delivery of it it's stuff like even the fact that some of the the logs the text logs are incredibly well hidden in the yeah. game, which is fair enough if you want to keep some mystery. But then when you find them, you then also need to find a code to translate them. So it's really doing its best to make sure that the story isn't just simply delivered. And it, it may be that uh, come a hypothetical, but actually definitely happening sequel that we haven't, I don't think, mentioned yeah. <laughs> yet. Um, spoilers, there's a sequel due. Um, it may be that I'm absolutely apt to eat my words and that this game was all set up for a wonderful exploratory sequel and the ending certainly leaves that as a possibility. But standalone this game, this, I think for me, is one of the weakest, if not the weakest area. And I don't think it's bad. I just don't think it impacted me the way yeah. I hoped, is all. Yeah, I, th I think yeah. there there are hints of some very interesting stuff in there. Uh, it, it's yeah. it's not you know I'm not going through this game like thing like oh you know oh this or, no, or sure or, it's so just a bit frustrating because it's muddled exactly. And so yeah. there are intriguing elements about this story. It's just like yeah, the mm. delivery the delivery is far from uh, optimal. <laughs> and it's one of those things where we're all like probably all thinking because you know we all don't none of, none of the four of us have a particularly low opinion of our own intelligence maybe james i don't know <laughs> probably with the least justification but um we're all kind of independently thinking am i am i being stupid yeah, here yeah. do i why do i not <laughs> understand fully what's going on yeah. and actually you know we're all we've, we've all read a lot of fiction we've all played a lot of games and this story all four of us we all came away feeling a little bit confused and slightly unsatisfied the visual design the art design i think First thing to say is I think it would be very easy to underestimate the sort of the difficulty, the level of skill that goes into making graphics that ostensibly you could say look somewhere between 8 and 16 bit. But actually there are there is a ridiculous amount of uh, sprite work and, and tile use and animation here. Colors that the systems you know the original nes just couldn't have done that's mm. one of the things that he talks about at length in the the interview we we listened to the the interviewer sort of i think quite naively sort of says you know could you could you have actually made this on the nes oh, and no. maybe he maybe it was a leading question deliberately so but of course you could as as tom thomas hap says you couldn't do one screen of this game on an nes it would just crash it, it just it's just too too much too much detail too too many moving parts too much complexity so although it might give off the the smell the vibe of a 1980 something late 80s early 90s game there's stuff here and in particular like yes the the Rizalki, the the massive the the Elsa Nova model for example is the entire game zooms out yeah and you yeah. and and during the final boss fight as well and you've got this really i think yeah strikingly weird looking design and and that's i've said this before so many shows i think going back as far as like our earliest podcast bayonetta shows i think it's so hard to make stuff in games that you've never seen anything quite like it before that what really stands out to me is a design that obviously it needs to not look 
ridiculous, like if, if it's not meant to look comedic, but something where your brain actually goes, huh, that's odd. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I talked about it recently in terms of the evil within two and the, uh, the, the use of the white fluid in that game. And, and yeah, the, the weird enemies in Bayonetta with the upside down heads. There's definitely elements of Giga here and, and, uh, and, and that's, you know, biomechanoid horror type of stuff. But there's something about these big white porcelain ish heads and the fact that they're kind of bolted onto these weird, gnarly looking sharp machines that is quite yeah. unsettling. And the sort of, sort of tubes that are all vein like that disappear into the wall and, uh, mm. uh and everything. Mm. I think, um, one funny thing is when my, my, my kids often tell me, uh, when they see me play games like R-Type or, uh, Gynook or whatever, oh, yeah. whatever 16-bit game or sometimes 8-bit game of the, of that era, they say like, Daddy, why do a lot of these older games always look, have very disgusting looking graphics? <laughs> And that's something, you know, that's so, sort of, you don't see that very often anymore. That sort of gnarly detail in, in sprite mm. graphics, uh, yeah. and, you know, these pulsating organic parts of scenery and uh, and all that stuff. And Post-Alien and, and Aliens, every game had a Giga level in, right? For a few years. Yeah, way. exactly. Yeah. But it, not, not even just a Giga, but just like assortment of sort of flesh tissue and... Uh, and, and Cronenbergian body Cronenbergian, horror. exactly. Yeah, yeah. And that's, yeah, something we don't really see a lot in games nowadays anymore. Only when it's a specific sort of horror title or something like that. Yeah. And I was very happy to see to see that back. Uh, you know, you you've got these there's different enemies in this game. For example, like the sort of they look like combat droids, but they sit on the floor and they they spit out like white maggot projectiles that sort of flutter mm. around the room. Uh, and and yeah, the tile sets which are sort of organic looking and, and organs pumping in the background. Uh, very yeah. striking stuff. Yeah, I think the the thing that makes this because there are so many games that are influenced by aliens and and Giga's artwork, but I think what makes it that makes this game stand out is it feels like Thomas Happ is like trying to take these things that on paper should be disgusting, should be horrifying, and somehow twisting it in a way where they're oddly beautiful. Like Elsa Nova, like the design, mm. that character design is kind of like, like, like it feels like it would be like in a, a an art museum or something like that. Mm. It, it's yeah. like, it's very beautiful, even though it's like, you think about it, it's hideous. The <sighs> same thing with that like weird transport mollusk with a face <laughs> yeah, that takes you weird. halfway yeah. across the map. It's such a, Yeah. It's such like a, it kind of strikes that balance that like um, some of the the Silent Hill games do, where you're kind of equally horrified and entranced and in, in the same measure. What I will say is, and I and this this feels almost in some ways like an unfair criticism, partly because the game started development ten years ago, and partly because it is only the work of one human being. But compared to some of the games I've played in recent times with similar influences, the animation, while what's there is great, is not quite the same sort of level and intricacy as something like, say, something along the lines of Katana Zero or uh, Celeste or or something like that. So there's like the, the little um, drone bot that you fire off and you, you crawl around as. It's cool. Yeah. And it's and it's nicely animated, but I think it's again it maybe it wouldn't look quite as authentically quotes Metroid, but if it had like twice as many frames of little feet animation mm. or something, it could be even more effective. But yeah, that's maybe but seems harsh. 
I think stylistically, this game is consistent. I don't, I don't think it, yes. it needs that sort of uh, metal slug uh, details right. of uh, so many frames of animation. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. What, I, what I find, apart from the, the, the tiles that are indeed so Metroid-like, and it, it, this game, going through it, did take me back to the late 80s, which, uh, in which I was playing the original Metroid and just going through these different weird and weirder-looking environments the further you go in and, and deeper you go in with tiles looking like weird bubbles and, you know, very very strange-looking places. What sort of, I think, makes Axiom Verge stand out in its own right is this whole idea of the glitchiness, you know? like it, yeah. It's a key, key game yeah. mechanic, but also uh, you see things glitching out in the environment uh, on purpose, even before you start manipulating anything. And it's that kind of weirdness. You know, when you were playing on the NES, you had like uh, a lot of sprite flicker and anything. And there's just something jittery. Yeah. Kind of, kind of intriguing about, about that whole, whole thing. And yeah, Axiom Verge plays into that very nicely of where it is. It's all intentional, which yeah, it, it creates a very interesting atmosphere. I, th- I think it's almost the video game equivalent of, of lo-fi, of a, a, a low fidelity right. uh, yeah. kind of thing. Where deliberate record scratch kind of situation. Yeah, deliberate record scratch, VHS filters, uh, you yeah. know, like uh, record cracks, you, you name it. Uh, and, and even if you look at the style of the sprite work or of the, of the 2D pixel art, it's uh, it's not super refined. It, there's there's a, a grittiness no. to it. There's a, an almost sort of aggression in the way the, 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 the sprites are built up like uh, mm. uh yeah almost yeah i don't know it's it's tough to describe it's 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 very it's very grimy and very gritty as far as pixel art goes and then coupled mm. with these special effects and the glitchiness it makes for a very unique look let's hear from our forumites on the visuals Gingertastic01 says the visuals wear their metroid influence on their sleeve with a bright 8-bit aesthetic filled with familiar tiling and corridors nice touches like warping explosions and weapon effects jazz things up a bit from its predecessors while boss explosions in particular are super satisfying yeah i'm pretty sure the slowdown that you get on uh, boss kill is entirely designed yeah. and intentional but again yeah. it, it evokes a technical limitation of doing something with so many yeah. particles would cause games to slow down and precisely they almost look 3d they stand out no matter how many times i've seen it they stand out against the 2d sprite it's just something that looks otherworldly looks like almost incomprehensible as to what's going on uh to me yeah. still mm. very impressive it's 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 not so much the spread work but the movement uh, of the explosion right yeah, yeah, that, yeah uh, definitely ca- causes that uh, impression yeah suits says the art direction is cool i really enjoy the sort of detailed shadow work done on the sprites and the underground grimy feel it gives the world however i soon my- found myself getting bored of and tired of the area backdrops. After the initial exciting reveal of what a new area looked like, it soon wore off for me, and save for a few cool sprites or effects, it soon became a little bland and sterile. Perhaps this was the intent, as it did evoke plenty of isolated and lonely feelings. I'll never get tired of seeing the bosses (laughs) explode, mind. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how far uh, suits got, but uh, I, the same thing sort of started creeping up to me until yeah. I, I reached the uh, outside world places. Mm. And I think this yeah. is where the game really started capturing me because it was at that point that I felt like I was 
much younger again like i was a kid exploring this sort of 8-bit styled world like i yeah. had done in games like rygar and like metroid and mm. in particular the trees really reminded me of the pillars and trees and the, the kind of gra- graphical structure they had yeah as those found in the uh, the nes Absolutely. version of rygar yeah i certainly was uh, feeling uh reminiscent of a lot of mid 80s computer games a lot of european computer games that sort of there was i mean there was a it was a complicated to and fro i think between japanese design and european design at this point as far as i was concerned all these computer games that i was playing things like starquake by bubble bus flick screen adventures where you found yourself you know kind of hopping around a map and looking for the answers to puzzles and finding the next item that you need to get forward. I, I didn't even know what Metroid was at this point, And I don't know how much Metroid was influenced by earlier European, particularly British computer games and how much then they took back from that. There was a game which came out around almost the exact same time as Metroid called the, called the sacred armor of Antiriad, mm. which seems like it's almost too much of a coincidence but but I, I i still to this day i don't know which kind of which influenced which but yeah this uh this certainly did actually as mikhil says did actually kind of even though it's a, a 2015 game it did have the power to at certain points bring me back to that sort of that delicious slightly lonely lost but intrigued feel of being trapped inside an 8-bit computer game. Yeah. Rinse, wash, repeat says the visuals are a messy mix of HR Giga-esque aliens blended with some cyborg-y elements. And most stuff seemed to have wires poking out here and there. The graphics didn't appeal to me, but they did the job. I never lost where I or the enemies were on screen. So that's something, I suppose. Yeah, that's true. A, a very good point, actually. I would say the... The clarity in terms of and and the ability to immediately read the situation, despite the the glitchiness and the the relatively limited color palette, I've very seldom had any issues of of lack of visual clarity that would actually harm me as a player. I think the protagonist benefits from having that big red gun, so it's just yeah. like so clear on the screen. And the character himself is quite a small model, but that actually works because it means that um, uh, you're not worrying too much about being hit. Like, it's very clear, like, it's a tiny hitbox for your player. So you're always very aware of what can and cannot hurt you and um, where you're going to land, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's really well designed from that standpoint. It's um, it's almost schmup-like in that respect where... Sometimes you kind of wonder about the um, character design in shmups, and you actually realise no, no, the the glowing bit in the middle is the only thing you need to worry about. And here it's the same. This yeah. is more gun with a man on the back than man with a gun in his hand at times. And, <laughs> yeah. and I speak yeah. to that because because of what I said about Trace earlier. There's sometimes it feels not much character there, and I think that's intentional because amnesiac yeah. protagonist, etc. But the gun's what I worried about. That's what you see that. And it's big at the barrel yeah. end as well. Uh, yeah. And, and especially when it's a drill. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Mm. The design of the main character is more functional than aesthetical. I think, I mean, I never could stop uh, thinking like, yeah, Samus in her power suit is just such, such a, so much uh, like a cooler design, you know, some, somebody you would really uh, prefer to control more. Yeah. This is much more, as I say, like, uh, 
I suppose it's different, but Gordon Freeman in yeah. the, it's yeah, just a, yeah. it's just a guy. Yeah. Uh, but here you only get a special suit when you find find a lab coat. Uh, but yeah, I suppose it's even more like again, it's that another world type situation where you got a guy who's just in his jacket and jeans suddenly finds himself in a twisted, terrifying alternate dimension. Toon Scottoon from the forum says, despite having rolled credits on this little number in January, there isn't much really I remember about the game. My notes mention that the character designs outside of the nifty little drone and the save room centrifuges didn't suit my eye. As for power-ups, I found them mostly underwhelming, especially the weapon power-ups. For the fast travel system, I wrote, Giant Head is more suited to an animated transition between Monty Python <laughs> sketches than areas of this world. Which I can yeah. see there is a bit of the Terry Gilliam yeah, about is. it. Yeah. But yeah. I actually, I did, it's got a sort of slug or snail foot type situation going on underneath. Yeah. Which again is an area where it's it's only got a relatively limited number of animation f- yeah. frames, which I think is maybe the thing which cements the slight cartooniness of it whereas if it had an actual kind of oozing slug foot i can't remember what those things are called where there's a proper name for it but it 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 does the thing that slugs do as they as they scroll along slugs don't scroll (laughs) 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 but i actually thought that um i mean thank thank goodness because there is no actual fast travel thank goodness there is an area you can get to where you can access all other areas from but yes you do ride this giant head but it was one of those things where yes I, I think that is the area where i almost i understand that sort of it's almost borderline comedic thing but it's also kind of weird and creepy so i sort of i'm yeah. sort of into it and the, and the background consists of uh chunks of uh, pink meat so that's that's not right. too too pleasant either no who knows why so thomas hap apparently was the person responsible for the sound design in this game and the music Gingertastic01 says the sound effects on the whole are suitably retro, but can be pretty irritating at times. And Rinsewash Repeat says the audio, my God, this game has got some of the most obnoxious sound effects I've ever heard. Repetitive and shrill shrieks, blips and bloops screech on at you incessantly. I assume this is an attempt to make the game authentic to its 8 bit sensibilities, but I could not hit that mute button quick enough. Ditto for the music. Uh, oh, you um, missed that! Yeah, wow. Um, <laughs> I, I can think of one sound effect in this game that I found anything remotely close to obnoxious, and I get why it's there. Um, everything else, uh, yeah, no, and the music that, that kicker on the end. No, I'm not. I can't agree <laughs> with that at all. Yeah. I, I actually really, I, I really like the sound effects in this game. Yeah. Partly yeah. from from my point of view, talking about those games I was just talking about, the mid '80s, eight yeah. bit computer games. Same. It actually. It was evocative of those, but also things like those really harsh and sudden, loud sound samples. They were like I had a proper jump scare a couple of times. Yeah, and and it cemented yeah, those the, little, little zombie guys. Definitely, yeah, yeah, they're terrifying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and those things that's that's uh, sort of yeah come out of the wall like yeah, oh yeah, yeah, like yeah. that, yeah. like the really loud sound all of a sudden out of nowhere. Or no, Do it's more me- metallic sounding actually. I did notice there was on one of the patch notes, it said that the beeping when on low health. That's my one. Noise was it was uh, it was downgraded from or it was in the original version. It would just beep very, very, very loud and permanently. But in the patched version, the volume dips after a little while. Uh, yeah. s- still too much for me. Um, that, that was mine. <laughs> I was like, yes, I know I'm on low health. I'm going to a save room. I'm fine. Stop it, please. Just no, I didn't want any of it. I, you see, normally I'd be 
you know, on side of you yep. here, James. But the fact that the the beeping was in time with the music that's playing in the okay. background yep. helped help greatly. Because is you, that always the case? Uh, based on my experience and and okay. having done some light yeah, research yeah. on this and i'm happy to be corrected on this but um whenever i played the game like it was on rhythm with the music that's playing on the right. background I wonder if that means that all the all the music has the same time signature or something in order to make sure that that's the case which would make it or depending yeah. on which area in the health beat syncs syncs with the syncopation yeah. or whatever so the soundtrack is by thomas hat it's uh, again i would say it takes takes influence from games uh past including there's some actual sort of note sequences which very much seem to shout back to previous metroid games but also he mentioned in the interview simon vicklin's bionic commando rearmed soundtrack in that yeah. it's got this very rich deep bass that, that sort of yeah. pretty pretty loud production on the uh, on the bottom end of the tracks my personal feeling about the soundtrack is that i liked a lot of it very much but I didn't I wasn't madly in love with any of it. My biggest criticism is that I think in some areas it just for whatever reason it just felt like this this is such a thing of element of perception rather than I because you could probably say this about most games but it just felt like it was music that was laid over the top of the game rather than music that was integrated or integral to the area that you're in or what was going on. Sometimes I felt like it was obviously, you know, the track plays you're in the area and it, and that makes sense. And that's generally how video game yeah, yeah. music works. Uh, obviously, we've seen more and more inter interactive kind of stuff in, in recent years. But there's there was something about it that just I, I like some of the tracks, but they didn't seem to particularly speak to or about the areas I was in. And as such, it perhaps didn't quite work 100% as well as I would have liked it to. You, you'd want a moment like in Metroid Prime where you uh, enter Fendrana Drifts, right? Like uh, with the ice and everything and everything with the music just just makes sense. Uh, like yeah. It, yeah. It, all, it all evokes that particular mood of the uh, of the uh, area. So I definitely get what you're coming from. But I think some of the tracks are just really good, especially uh, a track called and I was just listening to that before. Uh, tidal event or something like that. Vital, vital tide. Vital tide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's the one. Yeah. That just uh, and it, it's one one of the more elaborate tracks, and it plays in the Kerr area, if I'm not mistaken. And it it uh, really builds and develops, and I couldn't get that out of my head. It's such a yeah, such such a again a evocative track that. In fact, that that one that one also answers my other criticism, which is that some of them loop a bit rapidly yeah for areas that you spend an enormous amount of time in whereas that that piece is 10 minutes long before it repeats exactly it's really good yeah i i, I really like i i really love the soundtrack I, it's it was you a, a piece in my mind clicked into place when you mentioned bionic commando there because i actually don't think the soundtrack is very metroid like i, I when i think of super metroid soundtrack there's like one uh, piece of music it's like the main theme i think mm. that is quite melodic but then the rest of the soundtrack is much more focused on atmosphere and Ambience, like yeah. as you say like evoking the place whereas this soundtrack is much more interested in melody um, and that's where i think the the bionic commando influence comes in like every track is is like a pop song almost like it yeah. has a strong kind of 
uh, melody that stands alone, um, even when you listen to it, you know, outside of the context really of the game. I really didn't think of it that way. That's really interesting that, that yeah. you both got that. Uh, that makes it sound to me more like something like, I don't know, Shovel Knight or Super Meat Boy, where it's yeah. like every, everyone's a, a got full of hooks. Yeah, yeah, yeah uh, exactly. Yeah, less uh, less uh, ambient, right? Yeah. Yeah, hmm. but it does it does use some instrumentation uh, from uh, the Metroid Prime soundtracks, for example, Absolutely, and, yeah. uh, and that sort of thing. So yeah, there are there are little referential bits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. That, I'm thinking particularly that four note sequence, which is in the first track that you hear, do 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 do, that very much sounds like there's a similar sequence in Super Metroid. I think yeah. possibly in, even in Metroid One. Toon Scottoon says this game's soundtrack does things to me. Namely, the music makes me want to rush and gave me the sensation that even when Trace halted to solve a puzzle, he was panting and fidgeting and desperate to move forward. It got me through the game. That's probably why I've got the thing in heavy rotation when I run. It has a way of spurring me on, even if the game isn't calling me back for a second playthrough. And Pecan Pie says, So many of the tracks are standouts, but Inexorable is my favourite. The vocal sounds in that song convey the lonely and alien feel of Trace's journey. And whenever I hear it, I remember exactly the zone it came in on. Turn these up loud. Or if you're rinse, wash, repeat, mute them. <laughs> well, let's get into more of the gameplay. The world of Sudra is an open world, according to Moby Games, in which Trace can travel back and forth, but needs access to better gear and weapons to keep progressing. Several areas can be travelled to by means of op opening up pathways with the items Trace can find along the way. This also involves backtracking. Such items include, for instance, the modified lab coat, grapple, laser drill, address disruptor and remote drone. Some weapons can be used to open secret paths. None of the available energy-based weapons consume ammo. Upgrades for health and weapons can also be found while exploring every nook and cranny. Backtracking is needed for optionally completing the game entirely, but most of the weapons that are needed to finish the game can be found in a linear playthrough. The amount of alien flora and fauna on Sudra varies from area to area. The enemies respawn after leaving the general area. After killing them, they leave behind some health, it says, well... That's that's Not variable. Always. No, as per as per Metroid, sometimes you really want them to. And I was they going to really say, don't. Moby Games really <laughs> are going the long way round to say this game's like Metroid, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> the um, the first thing I wanted to challenge on that description though is the uh, picking up most of the weapons on a yeah, linear playthrough. Yeah. I picked up eight, and they're all yeah. twenty five. Uh, yeah, I completed yeah, the game yeah. with eight weapons, I think of so. which I used about five of them yeah. regularly. Yeah, but I think what they mean to say is that you don't need all those weapons to, yes. uh, you know, you don't need to go off the beaten track too much to be able to finish the game. No, uh, there, there are. Uh, so I think I had somewhere in the 16 area. By the time I went back for my two hours, I didn't go to the secret world, but I got every other weapon that you that I could have got in my playthrough. Some of which I don't know how you would find them by accident, or 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 even right. if you were so, in some cases yeah. looking for them. Um, it's so well. That's that's interesting to me in itself. So you found twice as many as I, I did. I probably didn't use that by, many more. There's obviously some you right. need for specific puzzles, or there's one bot yeah. like yeah, the, yeah. the hypno. Uh, I'm going to forget the second part of that name. The, the one that you shoot along and then it fork it, it goes vertically as well at th like three or four different yeah. points. I yeah. found that really useful for one boss. That's the only time I used it in the game. There are plenty of yeah, other yeah, weapons same, yeah. I did not use at all. Some mm. of them I then found okay. afterwards. The flamethrower is really tough to find. Yes, 
I've seen it, but I haven't got I it. I went through a lot of trouble trying yeah. to get that one. And it yeah. makes a mockery of the final boss because it shoots, like the shotgun, yeah. it shoots through objects and enemies to hit what's behind them, uh, but goes so much further. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right, okay. yeah that, we- that weapon definitely uh, got me through the, the last part of the game with uh, relative ease, but it took, took me a lot of effort to actually try and, and get it. And that's one of the ones that I can mm. kind of see how someone might find it without a guide, absolutely, because the clue is there in another note that references going to the east of one area, yeah. and it has just a weird 12-letter string in there that's like, okay, that's one of the passcodes, but yeah. that's pretty... Uh, obscure if you're not actively checking notes and trying to riddle out what they mean most players just won't the whole password tool and the Absolutely. decoder are, are completely off the beaten track you you you're have encouraged to, to use uh, them at all yeah. no no you i mean they are in fact a sort of so you mean key the, the to items a lot of themselves yeah, optional, yeah, yeah. optional con- uh, content so even getting those it's uh requires a lot of uh scouring and a lot of uh exploring yeah I suppose that was my question was was to James. So I obviously it, it's a hard thing to put into words, but I felt that I only towards the end of the game started to get more of a sense of how his mind ha- had worked in terms of how he hid things. So it sounds like the fact that you collected twice as many weapons as me en route to finishing the game suggests that you got slightly more into Thomas Hap's head in terms of where he was putting secrets and and in what the sort of patterns or clues were things to look out for or were you perhaps just more diligent and patient in hammering the drill against every surface and chucking the drone down what might be a single space so, hole uh, yeah i would say like more that. of the second one i think that explains why mckeel <laughs> had possibly i don't want to speak for mckeel possibly had more weapons uh as well i think you said you ended up with 17 is that right yeah that's right, I think okay. those are the ones that if you just explore as much of the map as you can either on the way yeah. through or then going back with other abilities it's the remaining like six seven eight weapons are the ones where you need to stand in a certain spot enter a passcode and it just unlocks a new route that you would have as far as i can tell no way of knowing is there okay yeah and it takes a little bit of a leap a leap uh, because this is yeah you're you're up until that point you're sort of inclined to think that your abilities is what get you this weapon right but this is a whole different thing where you need to enter a password actually so yeah, it's not that that easy no, to parse. For sure. But I think this this part, maybe the reason also why I got so many weapons is I really started enjoying the game at its best after I've un- I had unlocked all all the abilities. Yeah, same. And then uh, just going everywhere and see what what parts of the map I hadn't filled out yet, and just poke around and use different combinations of uh, of abilities to to get further and to yeah to get more charted out and more mapped out. I think that's something which is a is a bit of a through line with these games for me is that they often have a, a sticky beginning. I think thinking about um, Super Metroid even, and obviously it's a bit different to Symphony of the Night in that, as we said earlier, you can't just grind to level up and make yourself less likely to die. But just that the first few hours of feeling underpowered, getting anywhere is an effort. Yeah. I think that's actually something that this game has in spades, but al- almost for some players to its detriment in the sense that it really is a lot of there's a lot of for most people i think there'll be a lot of frustration and dying in the first few hours and then the payoff yeah for me too i think my i had 60 something deaths in in my in my end screen it was really only towards the yeah like right towards the end game or the post game even 
where I felt like I was properly not safe because some areas are still risky and dangerous because some of the enemies do a lot of damage. But I felt freer to explore and like I could fairly quickly get from one side of the map to the other and and just just look for the secrets instead of just barely trying to get from one place to the other and i think that's the point but i think as based on some of the responses we've had to this game i think perhaps it starts off a little a little too tough for some yeah yeah i think so for me it was not for me it was not the toughness actually it was just that i found the basic yeah the interest uh traversal not very fun or engaging and i think this is a problem that many metroid styled or castlevania styled uh arcade adventure platform adventures have is that they're very much concerned with brilliantly interlinked map layouts and map structures but what you do in the maps uh to get from point a to b isn't super engaging so and and i think and that's where my initial coldness towards axiom verge also came from Mm. just you know the room layouts in combination with the enemies didn't do anything for me for me a lot of the rooms the way they're laid out might as well if not for the exploration bits and poking at secrets might as well might as well had been you know randomly generated uh with the with the with the enemy layouts like if i go back to the original metroid it's not a friendly game at all to play and it's 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 not pleasant and you're gonna get frustrated and everything but i remember very vividly from when i played it back then that there were these sort of traversal challenges like for example you had like a pillar of blocks that if you would shoot them they would disappear and then they would reappear back again and you would have to use that to shoot to make stepping stones for yourself then let them reappear back again and then climb up an impl- impossibly tall shaft that way and mm. it's not I wouldn't say it was a particularly fun thing to do, but you would have actually something to occupy you and challenge you while you were getting through the uh, through the environment and some sort of micro challenge to to solve. And I was completely missing that sort of thing in uh, in Axiom Verge in the beginning. So the other trick that famously games of this type play is that they very often, as in the case of uh, Super Metroid and Metroid Prime and Symphony of the Night, is they give you all your powers mm-hmm. to start with and then take them away so you can see what you're aiming yeah. towards. So you get the feeling yeah. that you're trying to work back towards being fully powered up. This game does not Doesn't do, do that. that. Yeah, you you just have to trust it that it will give you yeah. awesome powers, and it does you know, eventually. Yeah, what that means is instead of so when you get the lab coat upgrade, instead of oh cool now I get to do a bit of what I used to had done for the first hour or two of the game, it's what's this? How do I use this? And what it means mm-hmm. is that I think it slows down the pace at which. Um, the game is able to start layering on the extra challenge that, Mikhail, you seem to indicate you felt wasn't coming mm-hmm. quick enough because it's not yeah. layering on the extra abilities that make the gameplay more interesting. It's really fascinating um, watching back a speedrun because over the course of 15 hours of my game, I hadn't really appreciated it, but there are key points and key upgrades you get where the game just changes what you're doing on a moment-to-moment mm. basis and the way you're playing changes. And in a speed run of, say, 38 minutes was the one I watched, around the 28 to 30-minute mark, it's like watching someone play a different game. Once they've got the drone teleport yeah. and the dash from the um, the red coat and the grapple, and suddenly it's like watching someone play as if they're in Spider-Man. 
game rather yeah. than in a commotion very, yeah, completely different and the pace of play different differs so much and it's so difficult to do right because Mikhail, you're feeling like the challenge and the pace of new abilities wasn't coming quick enough but for someone else they might be overwhelmed if it came quicker and not make use of the new yeah. abilities and forget that they can do certain yeah. things so it's really difficult but yeah. yeah and don't get me wrong i'm not just talking about the challenge i'm just thinking about like the moment to moment in these in these rooms in these yeah. environments was yeah, there was just not nothing to really hook onto, nothing to exactly nothing to really engage me. There are some abilities where um so like the double jump for example and and Axiom Verge is hardly the the only guilty candidate here like that like Hollow Knight does yeah. the same thing even Symphony of Night and Super Metroid do this but like double double jump feels like an ability that maybe should be just an ability you have whereas like the teleporting coat the grapple the the ability to teleport to your drone own. those are those are abilities that dramatically transform your relationship with the environment and discovering yeah. that that I, that preserving that feeling of oh my god the game has changed that is really important mm. but those other abilities that kind of just act as modifiers i think you know maybe just have those as standard because I think those early sections of the game that you're talking about, McKeel, mm. would be more engaging if you had a character that just felt more versatile right from the off rather yeah. than feeling like a sluggish, uh, you know, robot that you're controlling. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then you're walking through this room. Oh, look, there's the, the critters that sort of move around a platform like in Metroid. You know, I've seen that dozens of times already in there. Yeah, there's, there were, were not exact, exactly laid out in a very fiendish ways that presents problems to you that yeah. you need to overcome or to solve. Yeah. So, yeah. And one of the things that I, struck me about the first maybe two thirds mm. of this game in terms of making progress was that it didn't really, make you backtrack for quite a long quite a long way into the game you it, it felt like i was pressing forward whereas i i felt like i mean it's been quite a few years since i completed super metroid but i felt like that game was asking you to backtrack from very early on uh, and maybe maybe some other games in the genre as well are like you remember that door you saw just a little while ago well you'll be you'll be going back there when you pick up the next thing another another thing i wanted to uh, mention as well and I'm not sure how much sort of Metroid expertise we've got between us I know some but was what this game doesn't have that Metroid has so as well as it not having all the same influences some things that I noticed like although you do need certain weapons in theory to be able to open certain doors actually there's nothing a lot of things aren't hard hard locked behind a gate of a so it's not like there is a door that you have to shoot with missiles to get through it there's nothing quite like that so you might pick up one weapon that can shoot through the environment to yeah. uh, hit the switch but you might have picked up a different one so it's a little yeah. more it's a little less rigid in some respects uh, yeah definitely as an, as an example one of the weapons that i found most difficult to get in the game that kind of was my not final straw because that sounds like i lost patience but it was the indicator of i'm not going to try and push for 100% items and map on this because if I'm already at the point where getting a, a one of the weapons is this difficult is in the room mm. where Elsa Nova um, ends up after she's transformed before you go up to the final boss where she's taken that full form that kind of um, logic defying form if you like where she's moving around in the room 
Um, just as you, as I entered that room from the right, one of the weapons, the turbine pulse, you have to jump up there and it's right at the very limit of what, where you're able to reach with a jump. So a really highest jump you can do plus the dash, uh, with the red coat on uh-huh. plus shooting the, uh, drone up <laughs> and then just yeah. getting the drone to go over the edge. Or you can, there's a little ledge below there where, so the grapple's great for moving horizontally, but I didn't find, like with some games, the momentum was great for carrying you upwards because you let go at the 90 degree uh, and move to the side. So, but the other way you can do it is you can, so you can jump up and dash and then grapple, and then you can swing with the grapple, but when you detach or detach rather from the grapple, you have to then shoot the drone up. And of course, the other option is you can then teleport to the drone and and dash yourself onto the ledge. So there's multiple different ways of doing that, but either way, yeah. I was at the limit of what I felt my fingers were able to do quickly and at the right time <laughs> yeah. to be able to actually do it. So I tried for a good 15 minutes to get that, if not more, if not 30 minutes, and then was just like, right, I got it. That's it. I'm going to get this weapon and, and I'm, yeah, that's I would done. certainly say that towards the end of the game, even just the getting through those last few yeah. sections, which were a bit of a gauntlet, I, there were points where I was not quite button mashing, but my execution was a little substandard and I was dashing at the wrong point and then yeah. firing off the drone. It's easy to of, do that actually, yeah, to yeah. Uh, involuntarily Just dash. getting into a bit of a mess and obviously I managed it in the end, but it was, uh, it, I think it would take a number more hours yeah. of practice to really have that stuff down pat the sentinel boss is actually what what got me to really start looking for more powerful weapons it's one of the few bosses in which the uh, save room is uh, still a little bit a little way off from where the last fight is and there and then there's are these sort of drones that shoot lasers downwards and they whittle whittle me down half already before i got there and then you got this sort of yeah, sort of bullet hell style boss that you had to fight uh, afterwards. Yeah, that's how I got the flamethrowers. Yeah, I, I yeah. just started roasting them from through the wall. Um, out of curiosity, I because I felt not sure because I underestimate my gaming abilities quite quite regularly and quite severely. But yeah. I was just watching my health melt, particularly on that run between the save room and the sentinel boss, mm. and I felt like there yeah. must be a way to do this. So I started looking for no damage. Uh, videos on YouTube once I'd um, cleared the game the second time uh, or clear, cleared the bo- right. final boss run the second time because I could not see ways of cleanly avoiding damage but sure enough there are people and a lot in a lot of cases it's yes. scoot through under the boss get to the other side of it and it just won't attack in some case if you can cleanly yeah. get to the other side of the boss it won't turn it just will keep firing in the wrong direction and you can stand there until you know cows come home just shooting in the back but, <laughs> but there right. definitely are situations where people just have got the mechanics down a classic that you just reminded me of Liam was the number of times I meant to teleport to the drone and instead blew the drone up and went back to where I was just like, oh, that's, it's literally on the switch, the difference between pressing the Y and the A button. I can manage to do that any other time, but in a panic, every time went wrong. (laughs) Same. Yeah, yeah. I spent like 15 minutes also in one of the worlds trying to get that second injection, that mutagen. uh, Gives you a second second sense. Top of the screen, right? Yeah, it's it's boxed in. So what you have to do is you have to uh, dash towards it, throw uh, the drone, and when it hits the wall, uh, teleport to it, then through dash the through the wall in, oh, inside God, that no boxy way. area. And the thing is, the, the 
dashing through walls is very specific because you yeah. have to be next to it. If you are a little bit yeah, off yeah. from the wall, yeah. it will just you will dash into the wall instead of yeah. through it. So that yeah, that took me about 15, 20 Same. minutes before Same. I got and that right. Uh, wow. And then dropping all the yeah. way down, yeah. climbing up What there again, doing it again. Yeah. What does that give you? It gave yeah, it gives you a second set of uh, tentacles basically. So you shoot Ooh. like uh, two rows of bullets while you fire other guns. It, it doubles the rate. <laughs> yes. Of the, the, okay. the kind of. Um, yeah, that tentacle fire goes out. They're not actually that useful, are they? Because you're very seldom at yeah. full health. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, at, when I had all my abilities and all my weapons, I found that I was, uh, even uh, when I would lose a little bit of health, I would uh, quickly yeah. gain it back by just yeah, constantly killing enemies. Fair. So I, w- I actually had them out a lot of time. I do feel the whole thing is, is very yeah. carefully designed. It feels like a game that he worked on for five years in the sense that Stuff like that run you're talking about. Yes, I, I, I ended up failing that a number of times, but every, each time, and I only had eight weapons to work with. If I had had all 25, I might have considered more <laughs> different strategies. Yeah. But each time I was thinking, right, there, I know, I believe, I trust the developer here. There is a better way of doing this that I don't end up yeah. at the boss by being hurt. So one of the weapons we or the pickups we haven't mentioned yet is this glitch gun, which actually transforms uh, any you can you can do it on any enemy and it has a subtly different effect on almost every enemy and then yeah. and then once that once you've tried that on everyone you can you then need to try kind of all the different weapons you've got on things because different different weapons on different glitched enemies will do different things even to the point that some of the enemies above the ground somewhere in one of the northern areas or the uppermost areas there are these little sort of flower fan looking things that, that scoot about if you glitch those they always turn into a bunch of the disruptor bombs oh. like every every time so right. they're little you know their little tails that dangle down if, if you glitch them out they then they always become a row of five i think it is disruptor bombs oh okay so, so you can keep yeah. on stacking up and i think there's i think there's probably a lot more sort of subtle little touches maybe some that i'm, I'm assuming there's a lot of stuff like that that i haven't even clocked yeah. But, um, yeah, deeper straps. Oh, absolutely. And, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah. Some enemies, yeah. uh, turn into, uh, like those big worms, for example. If you, if you glitch those out, they start breaking through blocks and walls and reveal secret, uh, yeah. secret there's, messages. There's quite a few puzzle, like uh, solving moments where you're using glitched enemies. The number of, uh, times I went in to try and find secrets and immediately killed the enemy and then thought, oh, no. I'm going to have to go two rooms away to reset this enemy because I haven't tried to yeah. see if it yeah, does yeah. anything. And yeah, there's um, there's somewhere if you glitch an enemy, it then starts following your movements. It'll only fire when you fire. It'll go up, down, left, right, and you can then navigate the enemy to to open a door for you or whatever. It's really clever stuff. It's, mm-hmm. it's so well done. Yeah, yeah. It reminded me of uh, of using the magic powder in uh, Zelda: Link to the Past and Link's Awakening on enemies oh, yeah, and see yeah, yeah, see yeah, what yeah. that does. Only yeah, much more <laughs> elaborate. <laughs> Massively, yeah. I massively underused that in in those games because I understand there's all kinds. Of, I think we we talked about it on the podcast we did, but there are some uses for that stuff that you just wouldn't necessarily think to try in the heat of the moment. Yeah, it pays to be an experimental player sometimes. Ralamandastron from the forum says this game has a very clear understanding of what Metroid games are and why they work, and more to the point, it makes very clear choices about which ingredients it wants for itself and where it wants to try something a little different. The gameplay loop is, of course, familiar to anyone familiar with Metroidvania. 
you'll see many enemy boss archetypes and platforming ideas you've seen before and follow a recognizable pattern of steadily increasing mobility while being regularly tantalized with visible routes and opportunities that will eventually be within your grasp. It's notable that these are executed incredibly well, with far fewer frustrating oversights than some of the game's peers. Perhaps more notable are the changes made to the formula. It's always exciting to imagine what incredible abilities will allow you to reach the currently unreachable in Metroidvania games, but it would be a fair criticism that aspects of this blueprint have become a little too familiar. High stuff always means you'll be high jumping or double jumping. Anything sturdy looking is always indicative of some kind of explosive, etc. Axiom Verge has abandoned so many of these conventions in such a bold way, replacing the conventional with some really innovative alternatives like the teleporting lab coat, the scouting drone and, most flashy of all, the address disruptor. The address disruptor is a stroke of brilliance and has changed the gameplay loop in more ways than the initial removal of the glitchy barriers. I particularly love the mechanism of changing enemy behaviours. Often this is as simple as disempowering them, but some of these creatures do some really exciting things when their code is tweaked. The game has also gone further than its inspirations with its minimalist design and oppressive lonely atmosphere. The soundtrack is a huge and successful part of that, playing heavily on the technique of starting with simplistic 8-bit melodies and building in some more complex and bassy stuff. I must admit I'm a sucker for that. It worked for Undertale too. In hindsight, the pacing is a big contributor to that atmosphere as well. It's slow, often with progress only in the form of the abstract, and enemies can be very spongy. This all works in the context of the setting. Trace is in a fully alien world he doesn't understand, with a truly frustrating lack of information and context. It's relatively immersive to have the player feel this way too. Which is an interesting reading of that, not having things explained to you. And yes, I suppose there is a version of this game where, even though we, we may have all been similarly critical of the muddle around the what we felt, we feel is, is some confusing storytelling it might damage the game and the experience we had with the game in some ways if it was more on the nose with its narrative. One of the things that's often leveled against Other M, of course, that Metroid game is that they tried to, you know, with, with Tecmo being in the, in the driver's seat, they, they put in, you know, cutscenes and story elements not particularly well done and that actually not helpful in kind of keeping that Metroid vibe going. Kind of antithetical. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tricky one. And one thing I wanted to say as well is there is a, especially for streamers, speedrunning mode in this game, which takes out all the cutscenes and, uh, and, and text exchanges. So if you just want a game that where you basically want to make up your own story or interpret it from just the environments and just what happens, then you can do that too and all that. Pecan Pie says, I played Axiom Verge earlier this year on the Switch after seeing it selected for the pod this year. I just replayed Super Metroid a few months prior and so when I started I was kind of disappointed how similar it felt. But as I progressed further and got more abilities, I appreciated the advanced ideas of this love letter. Particularly moving through the environment via the drone and teleport abilities was a blast. Some of the hidden items that involved shooting your drone up, teleporting the drone and then teleporting through a wall were quite the feat. That coupled with the address disruptor had enough new gameplay elements to make this an interesting Metroidvania. I wanted to talk about the actual reading of the map. So the map looks like a Metroid map. The issue I suppose I had with it, and this ties into locomotion discussion as well, was that you can always see where there's a 
door that you haven't been through, just a simple little light dash showing that there's a door that you've yet to go through. There was a tool patched in to allow you to put one or two uh, reminders on each section of the map, which I did utilise, which is uh, obviously a contemporary quality of life type thing that when Mikhail was mapping out the original Metroid, there would be no such niceties for him. But what I do have a problem with, and, and I guess this is just maybe it's just the the problem in inverted commas of having so many games and so little time is that in those areas where it just it was an area that just ends with a a room that seemingly doesn't have any more doors in it it's quite time consuming with no fast travel beyond the big monty python thing in the center it's quite it's quite a lengthy task to go round every corner of every area of the map just on the off chance that you may now have the ability to maybe go through an area that may or may mm. not be there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think, um, and sometimes there, there is something there. Sometimes there isn't. Even when I was going looking for secrets, there are just kind of dead end rooms that I don't recall there being anything in necessarily, which is yeah. kind of weird. Um, but that couldn't be entirely intentional, of course. Um, perfectly possible not everything has to have utility to it for it to be worth being there and exploring as long as you're willing to explore the map for the exploration's sake do do any of you three feel that the game would have been either helped or hindered as an experience by allowing teleportation between save rooms i I think it probably would have been helped it's what james was saying was is is very interesting as well because i also had a lot of trouble trying to sort of map this game out Mm. in my mind uh even when looking at the overall map of the whole game (laughs) and um i had a hell of a time trying to find that one area that was completely glitchy where you had to use the disruptor bomb to get through that's fairly in the beginning of the game yeah yeah right there's two areas right at the start with that and and of course when you first see it it's really scary (laughs) The one that's at the top of that room in the first yeah. area, uh, that I had no problem with because it's in the beginning. But there was one later on that I couldn't find back anymore uh, yeah. after after yeah. after trying to find it. Another thing that the original Metroid and Super Metroid does is the elevators between sections, yeah. right? This game sort of has you uh, go in one door and you come out in another section. And in, let's say, areas on the map, there are already a lot of different looking uh, tiles and and environments. So it doesn't exactly feel like, oh, I'm in this whole new area right now. I think I would have liked to see that sort of transition, like sort of like what what I like about that in the original Metroid games is that you feel you're traveling to a different place, right? Like you're different, traveling to another uh, part of the planet or the the environment that you're uh, exploring. Mm. I do think Axiom Verge would have benefited from some kind of fast travel but it's kind of the scale of the world is like right in the middle between like super metroid and symphony of night whereas i think super uh, super metroid's world is small enough and dense enough where it kind of gets away without having a fast travel because there are so many different ways you can get to the same place and and all of that stuff and compared to more modern metroidvanias super metroid isn't that big um and symphony of night like at first 
it expects you to travel on by yourself quite a bit and then starts introducing those fast travels um, the further you get into the game. I think there might have been like a balance to be struck where maybe fast travel was like an ability that you unlocked later on where you get to the point in the game where yeah, backtracking yeah. becomes more of a thing. Um, mm. So you kind of get the best of both worlds where you force people to kind of um, dig into, you know, explore all those dark corners kind of um just feel against the wall and, and 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 explore but then when you've got to the point where right the, the player has a sense of the world now let's not force them to do busy work anymore mm. yeah what i will say is completed the game as i say with whatever percentages i completed it with i only twice towards the end of the game had to sort of look up a just just which area should i be in like which area to to open the next bit, but yeah. that that came like literally sort of thirteen hours into my play. I, I never got properly lost or stuck throughout no, most of the yeah. game. So that that's shows that in in Actually, subtle ways he yeah. was steering. You I think it. that's where I come around. I'm not. I think this game with backtracking would need to be a different game for me. In that I'm not sure the number of times I actively thought, right, I am now backtracking. We're actually really few and far between in this game. I don't think that's the intent. Yeah. Like you were saying, Leon, with a Metroid game, yeah. you see the door and within maybe an hour, possibly two, you're coming back to it. Whereas in this game, as Mikhail said, it's really easy to forget where that thing you was that you was that you saw 10 hours ago. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. not yeah. sure it actually is a game that one, like if you were supposed to, if you were going to unlock fast travel, I think there would need to be a reason for me to use that beyond just, I'm now exploring the map. I was so frustrated playing it because I felt like I want to be learning this map more and I'm not, but equally well, I have to acknowledge that it felt like the game was pushing me forward as Leon, you so eloquently said, and it felt like the game was designed to to do that, to keep pushing you forward and getting you to where you need to be actually fairly subtly. But whether it's with different um, abilities or just different styles of play, there are often multiple routes that you could take to get to one place and it, the game does funnel you. Yeah. I think actually that I'm starting to come around the idea that maybe is intentional and maybe not having fast travel was an intentional design to encourage the player not to think about going back until you get to the point of let's go and mop up. Yeah. Yeah. I think the the benefit to not having fast travel is that you come across a lot of areas while you're running around in your mop up yeah. quests that you might not have thought about, oh, I need to get back yeah. to this place. And then all of a sudden you all of a sudden you see, oh, I have some new abilities that I can try out here. Let's see what, yeah, what that brings me. Because yeah. last time yeah. I just had to progress there. So you get sort of like a yeah, you get s s sort of uh, forced to re-examine those areas again. One thing I did really appreciate, and and uh, Mark Brown points this out in his great uh, video, Getting Lost in Axiom Verge mm -hmm. as part of Game Maker's Toolkit, is that there's no objective markers in Axiom Verge. Dude. I think the most egregious example of a modern Metroidvania with objective markers is Shadow Complex, because not only does it tell you roughly on the map where you need to go it in fact draws a direct line from where you are right. to yeah. the final destination yeah. Yeah. and and there was a I real like that trend of that, that sort of that aspect was 
arguably missing the point a bit. Yeah, and and it's and that's the worst example for me. But like, there are lots of like Guacamole does it as well. Metrofusion so on the GBA started adding Metrofusion as well. Yeah. yeah. So just trusting the player to kind of get into the designer's head to, to kind of adopt the Thomas yeah. Hat mindset and trusting the design cues, I really ap- appreciated. Yeah. Gingertastic01 says, the game design doesn't stray too far from the standard conventions set out by other games in the genre. However, the weapons for the most part are interesting and unique, but can make exploring the world very rewarding. The game is also very open, which I appreciated, but all too often I found myself going back and forth, not having a clue where to go and what to do, which led to a number of frustrating evenings. For me, the balance wasn't quite right. I don't really want a blob on my mat telling me where to go in these types of games, but I feel the best ones smartly shepherd you to where they want you to go without you knowing or feeling like you're having your hand held. Additionally, the game world didn't feel as cohesive of a location as I would have liked in places. Some areas didn't really feel like they sat naturally next to one another. Suits also says exploration felt like a real chore. I got stuck too many times, which would require backtracking and aimlessly wandering around. With the amount of backtracking and exploring this game requires, I found the area designs to grind on me pretty soon. Also, another issue I have with exploration and backtracking is how long the enemies take to murder. Sure, you level up the weapon power after you find enough nodes, but I find the first five to ten hours of the game tough to explore and probe as the super aggressive enemies just take hit after hit. Twice I got stuck. Once in 2017, which meant that I put the game down, and again in 2020 when I started over in the hope I would this time pick up on the clues and signposting of where to go. In the end, I had to look it up and was looking for a guide online. As I was carefully navigating towards a guide, I stumbled across a game FAQ that opened with the title, I bet you're stuck here, and they were correct. It seems like a common bottleneck for players, and in the end boiled down to simply not using a new ability to get past a wall, one that is clearly signposted after collecting the new ability, yet still managed to catch a lot of players out. In the end, I was starting to resent the game and began to dread thinking about putting it on. That does sound dramatic, I know, but with the myriad of options available to us all now, the options seem limitless. So why waste your time playing something you're not enjoying? I tapped out after I'd reached the giant snail head room. I had options and ways to go. I just didn't want to. Fair enough. Yeah, it's interesting. I um, I certainly had times where I had to take a moment and really think, and I was just not remembering I had a certain ability. Usually it was I wasn't remembering I had... Um, the ability to dash and I was looking for a way with the drone to get around an obstacle something like that where definitely that happened and I tend to err on the side of it being more my fault than the developer my my, uh, just being obtuse in the moment but if Suits is saying I I don't know the particular area that Suits was talking about but if a lot of people are getting stuck there I think generally that says there's something about the design that's just not clicking for certain people. I suppose what I wanted to say was because it's demonstrably provable that you can beat this game with however many weapons you happen to come across on the critical path. In my case, eight. I think maybe that maybe it's only six or something that you need to beat the game. I don't know. But uh, it's far more important to find, unless you're some kind of ninja, health items, capsules. Yeah. Health, to, health to, items, um, power notes, and, and the range range notes are also good to expand the range of some of the shorter range weapons. Yeah, for sure. And obviously they all, their use, they all 
they they're symbiotic, so they all they all play play off one another in the sense that obviously if you've got more, more powerful weapons, you don't need as much health necessarily and stuff like that. But certainly for me, I think you can deal with almost any situation as long as your health bar is long enough. <laughs> yeah. Did any anybody have uh, favorite weapons besides the disruptor and? Uh... Uh, I, I did, but I can never remember the names of things. So the one that just shoots out a big ball of lightning around you became increasingly useful as the game oh, you went mean on. The, the shotgun style one, something like the, the I green suppose lightning it is like a shot. I, in front of you. Yeah, Kilver, yeah. it's called. Yeah, I never thought of it as a, yeah. right. I yeah. never thought of it as a shotgun, but yes, yeah. that uh, because it becomes pretty much one hit for a lot of and stuff. And you can shoot through walls as yeah. well. Yeah, exactly. And the one that's kind of just like a long lightish beam I, that I goes through things as, things as well. That was definitely in mine as well. When I got yeah. that, the, the, the red, the red uh, sort of laser beam, right or not? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's the ion beam. Yeah, yeah, that was I, good. I, I, I really like the shards. Um, yeah, I for used that one as fights. well. Oh, okay, yeah. I barely used that. Was that any good then? Yeah, I just I found the because it has such a big area of effect and it's so rapid fire. I found it really useful against bigger targets like the. Um, like I boss actually found fights. it really useful oh, okay. against smaller targets like the boss fight with the wasp. Um, I found that I could glitch oh, yeah. the three yeah. enemies and they yeah. would then be tied together. So when you killed one, all three of them went. I found in a panic trying to dodge boss fire and be precise with hitting those when they when they're glitched. There's just little white triangles. So I found using the scat like it's a, essentially a like a, a machine pistol or something, a submachine gun type thing. Just using the shards was was great for that because I could just spray and pray, uh, and as long as I was close enough, hit it. I also I also use that in uh, areas where uh, lots of like small enemies were trying to swarm me and just shooting the shards yeah. out in front yeah, of me. Definitely. Well, this I guess this speaks to the fact that all the weapons were in there for a reason and have their uses. Unless anyone can, maybe there there are weapons that none of us really bothered with. You mentioned the one earlier that we didn't have the name for that is good for that one boss. And then yeah, I never used that. Again. I, I use that one a lot as well because it's you okay. can just uh, because it it has a it does, far yeah. range and it has it a wide. Uh, has Infinite. a widespread so you could really take care of annoying enemies that were above uh, below your level uh and, yeah. and you just just fire it out and then when you couple it with four pairs of tentacles shooting at the same time you know like you have a, you cover a lot of range with that uh, yeah with you that can weapon. almost shoot around corners with it a bit like with the uh nova whatever it's called where yeah yeah the reflective thing i use that quite one quite a bit as well for annoying enemies that I sort of kited against a wall above me yes, or something, and yep. then bounced them around corners to to hit them. Like the the, the more the more difficult sort of drone like enemies that uh, follow you around yeah. and pelt you with uh, with with projectiles. Yeah. The only thing I wanted else to say about the bosses, really, uh, don't want to go into them all, but the way they behave is, or the philosophy behind the design of the bosses. None of them, apart from maybe the one that you have to shoot with that aforementioned weapon from underneath to damage it none of them were particularly there was there's no really complex sequence reading or weak spot finding it was more about again this i think it takes this from metroid is that they just get more aggro the more you damage them so they start firing enemies far uh, yeah. bullets faster and so you just ha you, your dodging just has to get a bit better as you go on but they can become quite in most cases quite attritional in the sense that as long as you've got some health and maybe you can generate some more in some fights you'll be all right 
so again it, it as much as anything it's about finding getting enough health <laughs> together and then uh, executing quickly without being i don't i wouldn't say for any of them you had to be particularly adept at video games i do have to say that that fly boss that james was talking about with the small things that took me that so many tries i think yeah. i spent yeah. like maybe half an hour of trying and trying and trying and trying again till i finally got it i got that one on my third go well, yeah. <laughs> wow! No, where did you go? <laughs> Kiss Mammal from the forum is one of those who says I've tried to get into Axiom Verge about three times. On my most recent attempt, I made it about four or five hours in before setting it aside again. The main weakness for me is the combat and especially the bosses, which just aren't dynamic or exciting to fight at all. I found most of them I faced could be defeated by simply standing in a completely safe spot and slowly chipping away at their health in a boring, protracted battle of attrition. Metroid-type games generally thrive on granting abilities that gradually empower the player and transform their ease and prowess at traversing the world, but the weapons and ability upgrades in Axiom version never seem to provide much variety or break up the monotony of the core gameplay in a meaningful way, and as a result I found the exploration and backtracking very dull. I could never really commit the map to memory for whatever reason, possibly due to the sprawling map and samey environments, and just didn't have that same urge to poke around in every little nook and cranny that I, get, uh, I got from games like SteamWorld Dig, because the rewards for doing so, typically one-sixth of a health upgrade, are miserly and often not worth the effort. The music and overall aesthetic is great though, and it's hugely impressive achievement for a lone developer. I just think in a market saturated with similar types of games, Axiom Verge doesn't have a strong enough core gameplay loop to make much lasting impression. It gets good after six or seven hours. <laughs> you just need to stick with it for six or seven hours. And uh, Suits says boss fights are the strongest part of the game for me. I love the way the boss fights are held in grand arenas and the way that they pan out and go through the whole dialogue section. Then just as the fight is about to begin, it zooms back into the normal view and it really gives the boss gravitas and impact. Very cool. Yeah, yeah, I agree. definitely. So the game has trophies or achievements, depending on your platform. Interesting discussion with uh, Thomas Happ on that interview regarding his persuading Sony that his game warranted a platinum, which is apparently how it works. You effectively pitch your game's need for a platinum to the they who decide at Sony, and he managed to achieve it. So this game has uh, trophies for normal story progress and that sort of thing and boss killing and uh, some of the other moments you'd expect, but it also has a trophy for completing it on hard mode, which uh, is not is really just a, a damage damage everything damages you more. I think uh, on mm. hard mode, there's a hundred percent completion and an under four hours. So you could theoretically do hard mode one hundred percent and under four hours all First in one run if you were really. First playthrough, probably not. Maybe with a guide, probably still not even then. Is there also a trophy for no death? I don't recall. Uh, yeah, I think there is. I think there is, yeah. Uh, you can actually click on the hyperlink on the show notes and they'll come <laughs> up. I'd forgotten. <laughs> I, I put so much work in and then I forget that I've done it. Uh, yeah, 100% item overclocked. That's complete the entire game in four hours. Find all of the notes. Complete the game without dying, indeed, is worth a gold. Right. Uh, glitch every type of enemy is worth a bronze. Uh, and there's also a low percentage completement with under 40% of items. Interesting. Uh, so, yes, passcodes we've sort of talked about, but there's a few Easter eggs and secrets relating to that. The Konami code is there. And I can't remember what it does, though. I did look it up. 
Justin Bailey is also in there, which is the famous Metroid code. But in this case, it just changes the the color of your gear. So it looks like you're kind of wearing a swimming costume. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. it's very minimal. That Justin Bailey code really got us back in the days when we were playing Metroid. Yeah, we and we didn't put two and two together that that was metroid without the power or metroid <laughs> that was samus without the power suit uh you just thought it was a, a different character called justin bailey <laughs> i think the konami code opens up the passcode system from oh, the beginning yeah. essentially so you don't have to yeah and there's also a ton of codes you can put in which kind of muck around with the parameters and break the game so you can make all your weapons absolutely gigantic and all this kind of crazy stuff as well so you can kind of play around to your heart's content almost like a sort of developer's debug kind of mode if you want to uh, get deep down and dirty with that kind of it explains craziness. a bit more why the passcodes you can kind of toggle on and off uh, once you've put them in that, that yes. makes a lot more sense yeah yeah they disable they disable trophies uh, inevitably so, so just playing uh, on most switch. of those things <laughs> good point is there has it got a, has it got a replaced in game not that i ever saw no i didn't see anything pop up or anything like that uh, okay most games yeah. do that now, don't they? Where where it's effectively here's a token of your achievement, even if it means yeah. nothing outside of the game. Even Metroid Prime Three did that. Oh, funnily enough, I didn't really poke about all the menus, so there might be something, but I didn't see anything obvious. There was nothing popping up and nothing no. in the in-game menu. No, okay, so yes, uh, if you care about outside of game achievements, inside <laughs> outside of game achievements, don't play it on the Switch or the Wii U. Suits from the forum says, "I'm still drawn to this game, its creator, and its existence. I love it as a concept." And as a theme, I just didn't enjoy playing it. Ralamandastron says, I must admit that on a couple of occasions, the tedium did make me stop for a few days and come back to it when things seemed fresh again. Not a deal breaker for me, but I understand that it was for some. And honestly, there's an easy solution for that. 2018's The Messenger shares many of the strengths of Axiom Verge with a much more assertive pacing. But if you enjoy immersing yourself in the nebulous but deliberate narrative that your character is experiencing, you will find Axiom Verge a rewarding experience. As an aside, I'd be remiss not to comment on the fact that a single person made this game, which is a truly incredible accomplishment in that context. Rinse, Wash, Repeat sums up with, I like Axiom Verge. I thought it did enough to evoke feelings of much older games, but was able to do a few things that were new and unique to make it play like a modern game and carve out its own niche in the pantheon of Metroidvanias. The strongest point of the game is its world. It's a sprawling labyrinth that rewards exploration, makes sense spatially so that you don't have to too often check the map. (laughs) And whilst it's often clear where you need to head to next, it never feels like you're bumping into too obvious boss this way signs. I like the power-ups for the most part in that they drastically alter the way you traverse and think about the map as a whole. What was once an impossible wall turns into a mere pillar that you can easily zap through. What was once a giant chasm is now a simple leap thanks to your improved jump. That floating block that looked extremely useless an hour ago, grapple onto it and swing across to get to a new area. That's exactly what these types of games are supposed to be about, for me at least, and Axiom Verge does it. Overall, I quite enjoyed my time with Axiom Verge, but there are some pretty big caveats there on two things on on that piece. One, totally agree about the not too obvious boss this way signs, but also massively appreciated the fact that before each boss room, there's a thing on the wall, which is a, a there's a boss, boss coming this up way sign, sign yeah. and, the door, <laughs> and the door is red. And always, always to the left, I think always, always pretty much is to the left hand side is a save room door. Sometimes to the right hand side. Oh, is it? Have you made you yeah. made that mistake then? 
<laughs> no, no, no. Because you can see, you can you see that the bus is, is uh, which yeah, one it is point. because it's uh, fiery red. Good point. Yes. And the other thing I wanted to mention about that grapple, given that it was apparently such a big influence in the game's design where Thomas Hatt was talking about Bionic Commando and things, you don't actually really use it for very long because no. it... You need to use it like maybe twice or three times, and then it's completely superseded by powers that you get beyond it. So yeah, even though grapple is a bit fiddly, teleport and, uh, exactly. and a wall teleport, yeah. So even though grapple is arguably a bit fiddly, uh, it's kind of yeah. You don't need to worry about that for very long. The reference to Rygar, the disc armor-like weapon. Uh, yeah, I just. Used that only after I got it to try it out, and that's where I left that as well. Oh, I didn't find that one. Yeah, it's like the tether tether charge, it's called. So it's basically a high tech sci fi version of uh, Rygar's disc armor. Okay, so it's like a beamy thing. For those who don't know, Rygar is not really a Metroid game. It's very linear, <laughs> horizontal yeah. mainly. The NES version is uh, is more oh, uh, open ended and exploration based. Good though. point. Yes, but the arcade archives version that you'll find is the arcade machine. Yeah. yeah. Good points. And finally, Gingertastic, zero one says, with the genre enjoying a resurgence in recent years, I find it hard to recommend playing this above some of the more recent modern classics in the genre. However, if you're hungry for a new Metroidvania game to play and like the look of it, you will no doubt have a good time with this one. Unless you're one of the people who doesn't, <laughs> doesn't have a good time with it. But we, we can always caveat everything. So yeah, just to briefly mention the sequel. During the 2019 Indie World presentation, Thomas Hatt revealed that the sequel is in development, Axiom Verge 2, and is planned to release in fall 2020. Now, we don't know if that's still the case. There is a global pandemic happening. Some things are still happening on time. Other things are not. You would imagine if there was a game that wasn't going to be unduly affected by a global pandemic, it would be a game that was being developed by one person. Mm. So who knows? Nintendo have it up on their eShop Switch site as download in autumn 2020. So fingers crossed. There's one shot of it and it looks like your character is a different sprite. <laughs> That's about possibly wearing some oldie worldy style armor is up in some mountains and some clouds talking to another big headed thing but a different looking big headed thing somewhat yeah less looking, futuristic more ancient egyptian maybe maybe yeah uh, so the bullet points are you may think you already know the world of axiom verge think again indra alone must be a new player character can navigate the breach. She fights for her life, empowered by the same microscopic machines that are gradually consuming her humanity. Discover the origins of the Axiom Verge universe in the long-awaited sequel. Uh, entire game created by one person. Similar feel to Axiom Verge, but not just more of the same, is an interesting bullet point to conclude with. <laughs> Good stuff. So, our three word reviews from those on Twitter. Toon Scotoon says, It sounded fun. Rinse, wash, repeat says annoying grapple hook. Sasha Holesh says weapon arsenal overflow. Bear Fishpie says trace of Metroid. Gadget 8-bit says Metroid's love letter. Pecan Pie says glitchy gun fun. Ralamandastron says Metroid formula disrupted. And Sean Bell says sequel now, please. Excellent. Thanks, everybody. So to summarise... I'll go first. I think I completed the least of the game, apart from anything else, and I don't have an interesting history with it either. I also, like Mikhail, was a little cool on Axiom Verge for the first little while, and I was keen to play it, 
initially beforehand wanted to be on this show finally get this well-regarded metroid style game under my belt and in the end i'm very glad i did there aren't too many elements of it that i'm completely in love with like it's not a game that i'm going to be evangelizing for everyone to play but the more i played it the more i appreciated it the more not just because it is the sole work of one man pretty much but just because clearly had a, an enormous amount of thought and effort put into it and uh, and that really shows up in in its design overall i think the fact that this game where i often felt like i was confused and lost i actually wasn't i was making good progress for the vast majority of the time a few bosses were gave me brief pause and and a few deaths and as did a few other sort of little getting from one place to another sequences but overall i thought playing on normal difficulty the the balance was good and also as with mckeel i felt the game really started to come to life for me in the in the probably the last third where i had most of the key abilities and i could start to really throw myself around the environment and start to experiment and explore find out what the enemies did when i corrupted them and attack them with different weapons and started literally throwing myself at different walls and secrets and yeah the little buzz you get from collecting a, a power-up pod of, of some description is always uh, is always a treat yeah so shame about that i didn't get as as much as i wanted to from the story the scenario i found it interesting but it didn't quite land for me but overall I mean, I expect this is a game that a lot of people have in their collections, possibly for a lot of people have either bounced off the early bits, which are quite intimidating, or they just haven't got around to playing it. But I would recommend it. Just uh, give it a while. And, but obviously, if you do bounce off it and want to play something else, that's fine too. Mikhail. Yeah, kind of reiterating what I've said before on the podcast and what uh, you just said, Leon. Um, I started off indeed quite cool on this game. And just the the idea I had that... Just basic moment-to-moment -moment gameplay, moving through the rooms, dealing with enemies, uh, not having much in the way of obstacles or particularly interesting combinations of terrain and enemies to impede your progress or to work out little problems kind of made it feel sluggish. But the further I got in and... You know, I I kind of sympathize with a lot of uh, correspondents who didn't click with the game mm. because I was feeling very much the same and some of them had bounced off the game and didn't complete it. I might, if I wouldn't have been playing this Arcane and Rinse, I might as, well have bounced, might as well have bounced off it as well and not have completed it and not got to sort of savor the things that this game does right for me. Because, yeah, throughout the game, I really started kind of... Um, getting this sort of kid-like sensation of wonder again, like the more I started uncovering of the map, of these, yeah, as as it was the case when I played Metroid back in the late 80s, yeah, the mystery of it all, finding these weirder and weirder alien environments and sort of soaking up the atmosphere in them, then getting more and more abilities, and in the end, getting these very specific abilities, like the, the drone and the drone teleport and uh, the you know the, the 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 final red lab coat that made traversal so much more fun and it didn't really improve on the sort of basic room layouts and the uh, the enemy placements but it did improve on having fun poking around at the environments and finding its secrets and i felt it was very rewarding actually uh, to to sort of use 
all your abilities in combination to try and poke at, at everything and finding and discovering new areas and whole new sections of the maps uh, sometimes that were not vital to your progress or vital to completing the game, but could get you some interesting weaponry and could, could get you into other interesting stuff. So I think those in particular are the strengths of uh, Axiom Verge. So I'm happy I played it in the end. Uh, I also think it's been very educational playing experience for me because it has sort of given me more understanding of what makes these games work, the, the Metroid-style uh, platform adventures, uh, and what elements I feel is uh, I feel are often missing from them. Uh, it's not it's for as ubiquitous ubiquitous a genre as it is right now. I think the the ones that are truly excellent are. Yeah, you can count them on uh, one, maybe two hands if you're uh, if you're generous. Oh, there's a lot. <laughs> uh, there, but there, but there's, there are indeed a lot of these. Um, and I think yeah, just playing this one has given me a lot more understanding of the of the genre as well. And um, yeah, I just in in the end, I did have a lot of fun playing it and exploring it, and found the final section of the uh, the map especially mopping up. Going through the older areas and mopping up secrets and, uh, and poking at everything, I found that very rewarding and, uh, and interesting to play. So I went from cold to definitely a little bit warm on this game. James? This is a really strange one, because ostensibly I kind of feel uh, as Leon yourself and Mikhail do, but the last, I guess, 60, 70 hours since I finished this game, I can't remember, I haven't calculated exactly, it was roughly three days ago. <laughs> Often over time, and I'm talking months my opinion of a game can change. So a game I enjoyed at the time starts to degrade a bit in my mind as I mull it over. And it's been three days, and already I feel much more positively about my experience with this game than I did immediately coming off of having finished it. I enjoyed mm. the increasing complexity and depth of the mechanics all the way through. That was always there. But as I mentioned, I was concerned, or not concerned, confused about how the game wanted me to explore. I didn't feel like I was being encouraged to learn the map in the way that I expected to. And I don't have the history with, say, the Metroid series or any of the other games that have been mentioned as inspiration for this that other people will who are listening to this and indeed on this uh, podcast. So I wasn't sure whether it was a nostalgia or a way of playing that I just hadn't got uh, and hadn't uh, grown up with, if you like. But over time, I'm starting to realize that some things that I thought were maybe frailties as I was playing are maybe were just ways, different ways that the game wanted me to play than I was accustomed to playing. And a lot of those feelings are starting to dull. And what's being replaced with is a real appreciation for the holistic way this game was put together. So I am much more in a mind of something that seemed like a frailty maybe actually was intentional and maybe over time I'll see and think about and ruminate on what that actually added to my overall experience, particularly the exploration, for example. One area where I don't think that's true is in the story. I think the amount of reaching, and I am someone who will reach with headcanon for, for <laughs> meaning that clearly isn't in the text or even hinted at as subtext, I will go that extra mile. I criticize myself for that when it comes to walking simulators and seeing depth in a story that maybe others just think is pretension or just isn't there. And in this game, I, I looked and I've, I've been on forums since completing it and I've seen that sort of reaching going on. I, I can't meet the game halfway in that respect because I don't feel the game's reaching out to meet 
me if it, that makes sense. But I think there's a sequel coming. We'll start to see whether some of the things we've mentioned is maybe not being 100% sure whether it's intentional design, or I've mentioned not being 100% sure it's intentional design or maybe an area that the game could stand to improve. We'll see. If it's exactly the same in the sequel, probably intentional design. If it has been improved in the five years mm-hmm. since this came out, maybe that's something that was being worked on. So I'm really excited for a sequel. I hope it brings more flesh to the story and more connective tissue, I guess, to the story. But this game in three days has gone up in my estimation, talking about it with uh, the three of you and hearing our forum correspondence, even the negative has helped increase my appreciation of this game just in that short time. And I feel like that might continue to happen over the next six months or so, maybe until we're playing a sequel. So yeah, very positive. Glad, glad to have played it and glad to have been able to step in. Nice. Now, even though it was uh, your nomination, Josh, I feel like we've heard the least from you in this show. <laughs> so now, sum it all up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, I think the reason why you've you've heard the least from me is that a lot of you reflect uh, reflected the same views that I have on this game, and I've had a, a lot longer to stew yes. on this game and mm. and and reflect on it. And it, your your views on it are much fresher and and kind of you know, off the cuff. Whereas I feel like, um, I've had some time to just kind of have my thoughts on it solidify and just, you know, James talking about how he felt more positively in the day since completing it than he did initially. I, I feel that, but like tenfold, I feel Mm. like in the years since I've completed it, I feel more and more positively about it. Like when you when you look at it just on paper, I think yeah, it's not really pushing the genre forward or this style of game forward in the same way you could uh, claim like something like Hollow Knight is. Right, um, and it doesn't quite all the way get it uh, get itself from under um, its influences shadow. Like it's sh- you know. Super Metroid, um, you cannot avoid comparing the two. Like, it, there's so much of its DNA in there. However, I think just in terms of pure execution, um, uh, the um, just the, the the level design, the mechanics, the systems, it's just really well considered. Yes, as all of you have said, like the story is probably the the weakest component of all of that, but I found it very easy to ignore in the face of how great the art direction is, how great the music is, and just how much fun I had playing it. And I think really key is that I think it understands Super Metroid much better than a lot of games that took influence from it. Like that feeling of fear, that feeling of being in an alien environment that's like creepy and Mm. weird and, um, and not knowing where you necessarily need to go. And that, that feeling that, at any moment, like this weird grey zombie guy will just come out of the shadows <laughs> and, and rip you to shreds, and it and it's just, and it was such a breath of fresh air from much more kind of polished and f- focus tested experiences mm-hmm. where, like, they tried to capture that level design, but then ended up just telling you exactly where to go. I, I really love Axiom Verge. I think it's if if you're 
are lost in the ocean of Metroidvanias that are out there um, for you to experience, I, I would put it um, uh, higher in your uh, priority list because I, I think mm. it's uh, it's amongst my favourites. <laughs> now we'll rank them all. No, yeah. no. <laughs> that's not. I thought you were going to say lost in the ocean of Metroidvanias. You will find uh, Axiom Verge to be a shining beacon. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Like a true X magazine writer. It remains for me, Leon, to thank James, Josh and Mikhail, as well as our correspondents and to you for listening. And to tell you that next time in issue 415, we find out what made Deacon Blue in our podcast all about Days Gone. Bye.